Welcome to another episode of Mets Across the Pod. I'm joined today by Joe. Hello, Joe. Hello. And David. Hello, David. Good afternoon, Tracy. And we've got a special guest with us today. We have got James Wagner, New York Times reporter extraordinaire. Hello, James. The last part's inaccurate, but I appreciate it. How's it going? <laughs> good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Uh, I mean, as cooped up as everyone else is probably over there too, but uh, thankful to still be you know, safe and sound and employed. Well, that's the main thing, as long as you're safe. Yeah, it's at, uh, New York was a hot spot. I don't know what it's like over there uh, right now, based on what I've read. But uh, yeah, you know, I think, you know, as, as we're probably going to talk about it, address, <laughs> I, I presume later <laughs> is just uh, figuring out the best way to safely, you know, resume regular life. I mean, it won't be regular, but baseball included. Yes, a new normal. Yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, I've appreciated eating at home more. It's a lot healthier than eating on the road. And I'm so used to spending so much time traveling, you know, 100, how many nights did I spend last year on the road? 180 some nights in a hotel last year. Um, wow. This is the most I've been at home in 10 years, I want to say. Yeah, it's been a while since I've spent this much time at home in one place. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you finding that? Oh, it's been good. I mean, like there's uh like there's things to read, things to watch, you know, hang out with my girlfriend, spend time at home, you know, things little pleasures that I probably didn't I took for granted maybe while I was spending so much time traveling. You know, you do miss like certain restaurant or sandwich shop that you would go to in a certain city. Like there's a you know, certain places in Miami I would love to go to to go eat lunch. I'd always have this routine. I would go to a certain place to go get my Cuban coffee and Cuban pastries or in Boston. Or in Toronto, there's, there's you know certain uh, Thai restaurant that I would always go to, things like that. I miss that part, but um, mm-hmm. those are small inconveniences to get love for the you know the larger health and safety of everything else. I found yeah. a hidden talent since this all since this lockdown began. I've got I've got an amazing hidden talent for gardening. I'm like a gardening monster oh, wow. now. <laughs> like what? I've been putting out weeds like it's, there's no tomorrow. Oh, really? my you're, not planting, like, you're not planting new things, are you? No, I'm just no, I'm just weeding. That's that's the extent oh, of it. <laughs> you should come and do mine, Joe. Yeah, um, I love it. It's quite good actually, especially in the on a sunny day. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, like honestly, that's like a, people that have their home gardens. You see, my you know people are posting about about this a lot on social media, like growing their own tomatoes and herbs and stuff. That would be pretty useful right now too. So, but it's, mm. it's too late to start. You're not a gardener, then, James. <laughs> Uh, I mean, in a big city, there the problem is space uh, and uh, you know the means, uh, like the ability to both. Not the means, sorry, the ability to, to have like a a sunny plot of dirt. I guess you could do it in the window. I'm looking outside a window right now. I guess you could do it in the window in the apartment. But I guess, I don't know where else would I do it. Where, where else would I? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've not lived in a city for God twenty years now, so it's not a problem I can remember. <laughs> I'm very thankful to have a garden and outside space at the moment. I do feel for everyone that doesn't. Yeah, definitely. So, James, tell us a little bit about your career, where you started, how you got to where you are now. So at the risk of losing all your listeners, uh, this is getting really boring, but uh, I'm from uh, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. My dad's from Ohio. My mom's from Nicaragua in Central America. Uh, they met down there. So I was born and raised speaking Spanish. To my mom, I still do to this day, and then English to my dad. I say this because it's part of like I guess my life story. I mean, growing up Nicaraguan American, and uh, my dad worked for the Foreign Service, so the U.S. embassies all over the world. 
And so this is not really my career, but it's a, it's a, it, I, I have a point, trust me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I lived all over the world. So, like, you know, my sister was born in Madrid. My brother was born in Nicaragua. I was born in Virginia. I've lived in Peru, the Philippines, Belgium, Venezuela, and the U.S. three different times. Um, so I guess, like, I always wanted to be a journalist, I guess. Not always, but part of me wanted to be a journalist. My connection to home was, like, sports. And I guess baseball. Baseball is so big in Latin America. You know, my grandfather gave me my first baseball glove. My mom, who doesn't really know much about sports, does know about baseball. So it was like a cultural thing for me. And like, if yeah. I was going to get into journalism and get into sports journalism, it was obvious it was going to be baseball. And given my language skills, not just the cultural stuff, but the language skills, I guess, you know, baseball was a place to go. I mean, I guess I could have covered soccer or football, which I also love too. I think it's awesome. Uh, I love it. Uh, but here in the United States, at least, and given my background, I mean, baseball made sense. So when I became a sports journalist, you know, I worked at my school paper, went to the University of Virginia. Then I got internships. One internship led to the other. And then my first job was at the professional job was at the Los Angeles Times to 2008. That was during the Great Recession, I guess is what they call it. My job was uh, laid off, worked at a small paper in L.A. County covering local news. So like school board, council, cops, crimes. <laughs> you know, if there was like new, it's a small little towns. So like if there was a new playground in the town down the block, I had to go write a story about that. And then from there, I went to the Washington Post, and then the Washington Post that covered high school sports, then the Washington Nationals, just as they started to become good. I don't see anyone cringing, uh, but I covered <laughs> Nationals for four plus years, um, and then the New York Times hired me from the Washington Post to cover the Mets. I did that for two and a half years, and then they asked me to cover the Yankees. Not ask me. They told me to cover the Yankees. Uh, I know there are faces now, but uh, yes. to be clear, I know you had teased this by saying like I'd switch the dark side. To be clear, I do what I'm told, and I was told to cover the Mets when I was hired, and now I was which, told to cover which the you obviously love more secretly. Yes, we won't tell anyone. I have no no preferences. <laughs> so, do None. you actually follow a team yourself? No. Uh, I do not. Uh, I can't remember the last time I did. I don't think if I ever did. I, I know I had an affinity for maybe certain players growing up. I remember when we lived in Lima, Peru, I was in like middle school, elementary school and middle school. And um, for somehow we used to get like WGN, you know, the there's like a Chicago television channel. The Cubs were very good, like same way the Atlanta Braves in the early days of cable, of having like a national cable channel. So they grew these large fan bases because they were so, you know, they had, they were on national TV. Like their local games were all over the country. So somehow, I don't know why, but we had, Cubs games on and I used to, and Pujol, Albert Pujols we used to be really good back then and mm -hmm. so just had an affinity for him like as a player because he was such a good player great hitter came up as a third baseman then went to left field then moved to first base he was such a great hitter and uh, so I didn't have a team per se and I guess I got it beaten out of me not beaten out of me but I just I've beaten myself <laughs> out of me. not like anyone per se not like any team per se I tell people this and they Maybe they don't understand the way sports journalism works. I mean, as they should, I don't understand how every industry works per se too. But like in order for me to properly cover teams, I can't have any affinity or interest in like what they do. Like, you know, I'm not a fan of the Mets. I'm not a fan of the Yankees. I'm not a fan of the Nationals or any other mm -hmm. team. If they do something good, I need to objectively say they did something good. If they did something bad and needs to be called out, I need to object objectively do that too. And if I were to be a fan of them, I couldn't do those things as well. That makes sense. Did you ever yeah, play, James, sense. yourself? Yeah, I mean, I played, you know, like any any kid whose grandfather loved baseball or baseball on the my dad's side, too, from Ohio. Like, yeah, you, you grew up playing Little League. The 
problem is that like when moving around so much, the ability to play a little league baseball is not as good uh, in like in some of those other countries. But I did play little league, played in high school. I went to I went to high school in some of my high school was in Belgium. I, we lived in Brussels, and uh, my high school was an international school in Waterloo. They had a baseball team, so I was on their I guess varsity team when I was young, like ninth and tenth grade, and that was awesome because we used to play other international schools and American schools. We like go on trips. You go play the in American school in the Hague, where the international school from Paris would come play us and you would host the kid because they wouldn't put us up in a hotel. You would just host like the other kid, like you'd have two of the players yeah. on their team with you. And then when you went to go play them, you would stay with them. So that was fun. Like playing baseball in Europe and traveling around Europe with our team was pretty cool in high school. I really enjoyed that experience. What position did you play? Uh, third base, but pretty poorly. So <laughs> is that where your uh, Twitter profile picture comes from? Is that you as a little leaguer? I, that was, I wish that was high school. No, I was a lot younger. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was uh, when I was in Virginia. Yes, that's the West Springfield Little League. Every team was like a different team. That was like, I think, the Pirates year. The next year was probably like the Royals year. There might have been a year when we, like, you, they copy just like the Major League uniforms, basically. Mm. Uh, yeah. Oh, and that cool. was me playing Little League. Not very well, but. Yeah. You said you don't support a team, but do you have sort of a favorite Mets moment or memory from when you were covering the Mets? They're some. They're one of the most interesting teams to cover because they like. How do I say this? Uh, like they just they did a lot of things that were kind of uncommon or unexpected. Like they would do things, you know, maybe you expect them to go a certain way, and then they would go completely the opposite. Uh, it's, they, it's kind of like <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> covering them in 2016 was my first year. You know, they were pretty bad. I forget their record. They were like what 60 and 61 at one point, and they turned it around and like made the wild card. I mean, that was a really fascinating, like, two-month stretch for them, even three-month stretch to go from a team that everyone thought was going to sell their players, trade them off, and then to go mm -hmm. to a team that made the wild card. That wild card game was pretty pretty dramatic. I just remember how tense I was on deadline. Because, you know, as I'm writing, I'm writing as the game goes along. You know, I'm, I'm not like, you know, after the game ends, I go talk to the players and come back upstairs, take my time, write the story. No, it's like the moment the game ends, like, you send the story. And that home run by Connor Gillespie, off the Juris Familia, um, <laughs> happened like what an eighth inning. I'm like, I'm so old now. Eighth inning, <laughs> and so like it was pretty fast from the moment that that go ahead home run was hit to the end of the game. So I remember how tense I was, but that was such a dramatic. And if I could enjoy that as a fan, just a fan of baseball, not a fan of either team, like that was a really great yeah. game to watch. David Wright's final game was pretty good. Uh, that was a great and interesting moment, like just how much he meant to people and how interesting of a guy he is. Um, I remember Les was at that game too. He I was, met up with yes, Les before that game. That was the first time I met him face to face because we had talked over the phone. Yeah, I mean, there's like other interesting moments from like, you know, not saying it's interesting at someone's expense, but like Noah Syndergaard, you know, like when he walked off the mound with, the, you know, the lat tear because he had bicep, yeah. bicep pain earlier, which turned into like, what, a 20 something to two loss that day. He had rejected the MRI the day before. It was like a, wild like three-day stretch for them that not, is standard I mean, Mets, not, isn't it? <laughs> which is not uncommon i know but like uh, that three-day stretch from like turning down the mri to having a serious injury that knocked him out for the next five months i think four and a half months to losing a game in historic fashion to i think anthony rendon i think had 10 rbi that day um things like that i mean that's like a fascinating interesting i don't know what adjective you want to use stretch right there you're bringing back very painful memories for us all but I mean, from, from my point of view, like I don't like, as I'm not a fan, obviously, you know, those are interesting moments, big dramatic moments that people remember. 
So those are ones that, you know, you have to like, not to borrow a cliche, you have to kind of bring it. So those are moments that, you know, like the star, one of the star pitchers being down with a major injury. Like there's a lot of like legitimate, like critical questions that need to be asked, like about why this happened, how this happened, what's wrong with the process. And I remember like that season, it's 2017, I think, or 18, uh, just writing story upon story about the injuries and just the process the you know, the changes, like there are so many things that were piling up. There's something clearly wrong with the way this was working to the point where I think the GM at the time, Sandy Alderson, was sitting in on the daily meetings, like training, health and training meetings, which he didn't normally do just because it had gotten so bad. He had to be there, yeah. buys it all himself, personally. So do you miss anything about covering the Mets at all? You know, the fan base, I'm not saying this because you guys are here. <laughs> The, fan, the Mets fan base is always find kind of interesting. It's kind of like a, there's kind of this like woe is me quality about them. Yeah. They're kind of like helpless, but like, <laughs> and like the, you know, the irrationality of, of rooting for a team that has so many like dramatically bad moments, I want to say. But the thing is, that if you think about it, like how many teams have been to the, you know, World Series uh, in the last five years? And how many teams have been to the playoffs twice in the last five years? Not many. So there's kind of this weird, like, you know, uh, push and pull where it's like, woe is me. But there are some high moments followed by super dramatically low moments. So, like, <laughs> yeah. things could be a lot worse. Like, it could, you could be a Miami Marlins fan and not having sniffed the playoffs, I think, since, what, like, 2000-something? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, things could yeah. be worse. This is, like, the Mets fans, I think, are woe is me. Like, their fan base is always so, like, like rich in stories. I mean, like... There's some more texture there, I guess. I'm not, I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's more or less than other fan bases. You know, the Yankees obviously have a lot of tradition and a lot of history and a lot of winning. But they also had some pretty terrible stretches, too, in certain parts of the last century before they became good. So I guess it's all like a selective endpoints. Like you could yeah. choose one endpoint and say, like, this really successful stretch for the Mets or say it's a really terrible stretch for them. So. <laughs> Talking about the, the Yankees. Uh, who do you reckon? We've got a question about um, Aaron Judge and Pete Alonso. Who do you reckon yeah. had the, the best rookie season then, out of those two? Oh, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> since I wasn't covering either of them when that happened, actually. Uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. You're the perfect person to ask. Completely not biased uh, or anything. I think Alonso obviously had more home runs, but I think Judge's stats, like his counting stats, not his counting, but his uh, uh, rate stats, so his slugging and on base were higher. And he plays right field, which is considered maybe more of a premium position than first base. And Judge is an excellent right fielder. I would say Judge over Alonzo, I'd say. I don't know. <laughs> Alonzo just has a magnetic personality. Judge does too. I think Alonzo is more open in, in interviews and more willing to do them. I'm not saying Judge isn't, but I think Alonzo just shows more of that personality. Um, I think he's, just more, he's become such a charismatic figure so quickly. There's a testament yeah. to him. But I think just on the field purely, I would say judge by hair. They're both really good for the game, though, I think, aren't they? From a kind of younger person's perspective, they're both pretty good role models, or they seem to be. Yeah, I think, like, and, and more than anything, it's like, uh, you know, like, yeah, being good teammates, good players, first of all, you have to be good on the field, good teammate, I guess. And then, yeah, just a personality. I mean, it's tough. Sometimes these guys, like, you have to be willing to let, like, people into your life in some way. Maybe they don't want that. They just want to play baseball. But like kind of what comes with being at this level and being basically an ambassador for your team and your sport and even for yourself is you have to just show more personality. And sometimes it's a tough for some of these guys who don't want to do that, just want to play. 
but like to become yeah. bigger and to represent more, you have to do this. It's just kind of like you can see some guys. You may see it in, in watching from afar in their interviews, or I see it up front on a daily basis, or even talking to them about it. Like which ones struggle with like how much they want to talk about themselves. Some are just like maybe more outgoing people, and it comes out more naturally. And I think Pete is Pete comes off that way. Definitely. And I imagine for some players that's more magnified being in sort of the big New York media market. Yeah, there's more. There's just more of us. There's more reporters. Like uh, I think on a daily basis, uh, I I counted this up once and I forgot it. Like how many people cover the Yankees? It's like eight to ten traveling beat reporters every day. Ten. That's just traveling. But then yeah. at home, it's like you know two to three times more per game. Maybe two to two times more. There's just more bodies. Uh, but I don't necessarily think it's like you know a tougher market. Like there's certain things about the way the player handles himself. That no matter what market they're in, I think go yeah. or make it easier for yourself. But like just mm-hmm. in general, there's just more of us basically. So like all of us want to write a similar story. Like, do we all go up to the player at once? No, I don't collaborate with the other reporters. But like, so is that same player going to talk about the same thing like five, six, ten different times? Like, you know, there's just yeah, there's just a lot of us to deal with. It's quite different here, isn't it? Because like in our for in football or soccer here, when you see the interviews afterwards, it's always kind of one on one, isn't it? Whereas in American sports, you just see them surrounded a lot of the time by multiple yeah. reports with microphones in, in their Act. face. Yeah. yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of that post-game. I mean, but like, you know, if I truly uh, need something and I don't really want to ask in front of everyone, I can just linger afterwards after that pack kind of uh, uh, finishes and like ask, pull the player aside, ask him something, clarify something, maybe get like more detail about specific play or something going on. But I think the issue is that like, uh, and I've read about this. I've never covered European soccer, so I can't say this for a fact. This is based on what I've read and seen and, and heard from my colleagues. Like, I have far more access to these guys than the European soccer uh, reporters. Oh, do. definitely. So, yeah. So you might see us in groups right after a game, but like before the game, like we get at least 15 minutes in there in the locker room. Players aren't necessarily obligated to be in there. They're encouraged to be in there when we're in there. But for those 50 minutes, we have the chance um, to talk to them you know, get more detail out of them, write stories about them. I mean, basically at some level, like, you know, the only reason fans know about these players is because of us. Uh, so like the one, the players that get that and understand that like it's their responsibility to both represent their team and themselves. I mean, there's a lot of like financial incentive on their end. If you think about it, like more marketable on their ends, but like just in general, like they know that people pay a lot of money to come watch them. And so like, it's not some like, they're not robots. So they, like fans have a connection with a team and, a, and players because they know about them. If they were, if you do nothing about them, just watch them play, you would you be watching? Yeah. yeah. Do you get the same players that will avoid that dressing room that 10, 15 minutes while you're in there? Um, the same sort of players that won't turn up to talk. Yeah. I mean, there are some that just don't want to be in there, but like eventually you're going to have to see them. Like they, they can't hide from you entirely. <laughs> they, like there is a kind of co- code. It's not written down. It's like, you know, some of these teams do media training and I guess they do explicitly say it, but like if you factor into the game, good or bad, like you had the game winning hit or you gave, you blew the save or, you know, you gave up the, the big hit that lost the game, a certain amount of accountability that you're going to be around to talk to reporters afterwards. So they might, you know, they might duck me for days beforehand, but like <laughs> afterwards, if they, if they factor into the game, they're going to have to be there because that's just like, and also they're accountable, their teammates, instead of say you, you gave up the game losing hit, like, and you 
duck the reporters, you, you know, leave and, you know, you're not there to really answer questions about what went wrong. Um, then your catcher is going to have to talk about it. Your, your, your first base, the first baseman or the, your manager is going to talk about it. And then they feel this pressure to account for your actions when they didn't really have anything to do with it. So there's that too. Though, yes, they might duck us, but they can't hide from us. Not Sessman has done last very long in his, his ducking. Yeah. And he's like that. I mean, I, the thing is that like some of it is, I'm not excusing him, but like, uh, in Cuba, players are not around reporters at that same level at all. Like they're not interviewed regularly like that. But he's been here in the United States for years. He's been told that this is part of his responsibility. I've talked to him about this. I've tried to get like even <laughs> even speaking Spanish. It was he's just it's just his personality. He just doesn't like talking to reporters that much. So even in Spanish, it was still tough sometimes to tease stuff out of him. I think I did tease out more from him than say if I didn't speak Spanish. But even then, it's just a matter of personality, um, and eventually. His teammates talk to him, team officials talk to him, the, the media relations staff, the PR staff talks to him, and it maybe finally sinks in and he finally gives up. And yeah, I saw in spring training, he talked, what, a couple weeks after saying he wouldn't talk all year? Yeah. Yeah. And also, it's just like, you know, the sooner you face the music, the sooner it goes away. What's five, <laughs> yeah. five minutes now? What's five minutes now instead of like letting it fester and then weeks and months later, people are like thinking poorly of you because you just didn't do the five to 10 minutes that you could have done knocked out in the first place. Like just, just do it, man. Like you're so highly, you're highly paid to do this job. And like part of the job is this. You said that uh, the fans get a lot of the relationship with the players from your sort of 10 minutes before the game and giving them tidbits that they might find. Do you think if, um, when the game goes back and there's fewer media, that that relationship with the fans and the players will change. It's a good question, and I think about it right now all the time, especially because they're you know debating a proposal to return to play, and I don't know what shape or form that includes us, like in the media reporters. So I don't know. Like right before this stuff was shut down in spring training, in early March for a few days, about a week, I want to say they had done this thing where um, they had. Uh, kicked out all essential, basically non-essential personnel, people they deemed non-essential from the locker room, the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. In spring training, we have a little more than 50 minutes, actually. So spring training is great for, like, working on longer feature stories about players' lives or issues or things that the teams are doing. Uh, but they knocked us out because, you know, the fear of exposure to the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when you're inter you know, interviewing, in my case, it was like, you know, working on a story about Garrett Cole. He and I talked for, like, 35 minutes, maybe. Yeah feet apart from each other for the whole time um and they so they cut that, that down and they did this like this cordoned off area where a player like it was like 10 by 12 i want to say feet I, I don't know what that would be a meter sorry um <laughs> and the players stand behind a table behind these like rope and he would talk to us in a group um and if we needed a player individually we would ask the pr staff and they would make them available to us if the player was willing and if they were able um uh, yes yeah, so it just basically what might happen i don't know like what what role like what space will be carved out for us. So like if we'll still be allowed the same access, we do have a writer's union, like a baseball writers association that fights for access. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think, you know, like I, you know, obviously I'm biased because I, but I do believe that biases and I believe that like access, more access is better, more, more stories being told about these guys in a thoughtful, interesting way, rather than, rather than a formalized like group setting five minutes or through team spokesmen or like, you know, controlled by them entirely, like isn't healthy, I guess, for those players and the sport. Um, I think more comes out about like what they're doing and what they're up to uh, through us. 
I'm interested in going back on, uh, you're talking about being able to speak to Latino uh, players and um, Cespedes. Um, I had a question for you on that subject anyway, that being a, a Spanish speaker, how much did that help you in your time covering the Mets? And, and are there any um, stories that you could share with us where this gave an advantage or an, an unusual insight into any of the Latino players or staff that were there at the time? I think in general, yeah, speaking the language, it's not just speaking the language, but understanding the culture too. Uh, yeah. You know, Latin America is very broad and diverse. You know, an Argentinian doesn't speak the same way. They're, you know, the customs are, might be different than, say, a Cuban or a Dominican um, or a Mexican or a Nicaraguan for that matter. Like, so, yeah, I mean, language and culture helps an infinite amount uh, for these players, especially because, you know, they obviously miss home. They're in a foreign country. Even if they've been here for years, it's just not the same. Like, the same if, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Um, and so, like, yeah, like, you know, learning English and just, you know, the comfort of being able to speak to someone that both understands where they're coming from and both just their language and to know they won't be misquoted. And then the nuance of what they're saying is picked up rather than through an interpreter, you know, that. And also just like imagine how tedious it is to have like a you know long sit down interview with a player and then have it, you know, times two because an interpreter has to go back and forth and back and forth. There's stuff lost in translation figuratively yeah, and literally. Uh, so obsessed with this too. Like, I mean, he's just, it's a matter of personality with him. He was just quiet and reserved with his teammates somewhat. And then very much so with us and reporters. But I think even then, I think I still teased a little bit more out of him than others that didn't even speak Spanish at all. So like stories about like, you know, he, I wrote a story, I was covering the Mets about like how they all shared music with each other. It was a way for me to write about how they like the cultural gaps were kind of bridged in some small way. Obviously, this is not mm. like they're not they're not solving world peace. This is obviously just a baseball team sharing mm-hmm. music. But like uh, how like Cespedes is like became a huge Garth Brooks fan and a huge American country fan <laughs> yeah. because his teammates is that he'd gotten onto it when he was with the Detroit Tigers. And he listens to country music like mm. when he goes to bed, uh, when he's hitting in the batting cage. And then wow. some of his American teammates had gotten to know like reggaeton or, you know, like more. Spanish language pop music because of the other way around, you know, like Neil Walker or uh, I think it was uh, Kelly Johnson and Noah Syndergaard at the time had picked up those songs from their other teammates. So, you know, Cespedes told me about that stuff. I'd written a story about like in 2006, 17, I think he kept pulling his hamstring and his quad and having mm-hmm. leg injuries. And the issue mm-hmm. with him is that he, he kind of had the triple whammy, I would say, of he didn't stretch enough. He didn't run enough. And he didn't drink enough water. So he kept kind of hurting his muscle, leg muscle injuries. Uh, shocker. And so <laughs> I'd written this story. And like, you know, Sandy Alderson had talked to him about this, the GM at the time. And Sandy was telling me how they were like the efforts to try to get him to consume more water. Uh, they were trying to get Tespas to drink more water. As basic as that sounds. Crazy. And so I had to like <laughs> talk to Ioannis about this. And like in Spanish, like Ioannis, like I need time with you. I need five, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. I need to talk to you about this. Like over like a week, maybe two weeks trying not two weeks, maybe a week and a half. Finally, the interpreter, I didn't like need the interpreter to like interpret for me. She just put, she was just like, you and us, like she, she worked on the media relations staff as well, uh, not just yeah. the interpreter. So she would be like, you and us, like he needs to talk to you. So finally, I got some time with him and like he was just honestly telling me he just does not like water and they had to disguise it <laughs> with some Gatorade powder. Uh, because it didn't have much taste. And I'm like, I know this water doesn't have much taste, man. Like, but that's that's what you needed. And so him, like, in detail, <laughs> describing this stuff to me, and I wrote a story about how they need you when it's supposed to drink more water. That's, <laughs> That's so <Yeah>. random. 
So drink more water if so, you want. Seventy percent, seventy percent of your body is made up of it. So. Uh, and beer, beer has water in it, so that's good as well. Yes. Yeah, but I think alcohol yes. is a diuretic, right? So I think it. <laughs> Don't say that. Out. No, no, me and Joe. We we like our beer, so we we won't hear anything bad said about it. But we drink all, plenty of water as well, don't we? To make up for we it. We do. Yeah, we do. Good. So, having covered both sides, do you think the Mets and the Yankees really do have a rivalry, or is it something sort of media created? I think it's. I mean, it's like a city thing. It's not really like a. I mean, they're not in the same league. They're not in the same division. Uh, so it's like there is one, but like. I don't think it's as fierce as Yankees, Red Sox, or even something like Mets, I don't know, Mets Nationals, Mets Phillies, Mets everyone, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, like, yeah, it's not the same level, but there is, like, a, you know, like, maybe there's a family in New York that has Yankees, un- Yankees-loving uncle and a Mets-loving son. There is that. Like, there, there's, it is real. Like, you know, neighbors that might have it, but it's not a real rivalry because they do play each other every year, but it's... What it was like, whatever. I mean, it's interesting, symbolic in a way, uh, but it doesn't have that same kind of feel. I know they played each other in the Subway Series in the World Series about 20 years ago, but like, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's just not the same. It's it being in different leagues is just it adds a weird dynamic. Do you think if the proposed realignment happens, um, that the rivalry in New York will increase? I would think so. Yeah, I mean. Uh, not to not answer your question. I just don't know like how they're going to determine like a division. Is it, is, it, is it a division winner? Like, I don't know how they, they're going to do that. So like, yes, if they're playing for something meaningful, Mets Yankees in the same division for like a division title. Sure. But I, I think it would be like what you stay in the same division, but you're only playing teams from the other division as well. But I don't think it matters for your division. I don't know. I, I'm not sure about the specifics. So if they're playing for something meaningful, sure. And if they're going to play each other far more often, I would say sure. Mm. Guess we'll have to wait and see, won't we, on that one? Yeah, I don't mean to give you a non-answer. Sorry, I'm just not going to look. Right. I've got a question Question for all of you. James can go last, so he can have a think about it. But um, my, my question was, if you could take one baseball player to Isolation Island, just you've got to pretend that exists, who would you take and why? Wilma Flores. Love Wilma. I was there for the no-cry game. I know I keep saying that. Were you? I was there. Yeah. <laughs> And I just love how passionate he was about the game, about the, about New York. And in that game, I think I got him because he felt as passionate about the Mets as I feel about the Mets. So you're going to just sit on this island and just talk Mets and cry all the time, yeah? Yeah. That's nice. David, come on. Uh, I haven't really had time to think about this one, so um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go for Gina Davis. Wow. Yeah, that's a Do good, we want yeah, to know a, why? A league of their own. Why? It's a good movie. <laughs> well, I just, I just think if I'm going to be on a desert island on my own, I think I'd like some uh, female company. That's all. Okay. <laughs> the less said about the better. And the some, best. Joe likes that movie, I think. I love and that some, movie. Of, some of them can swing about and catch a ball as well. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No other reason. Just that reason. Yeah. Just that. Just that reason. Okay. Do you know who I would pick? I'd pick Brandon Nimmo. Do you know why? Why? Because he could literally get all the food. Because he'd be like, he could capture yeah. any animal and provide dinner all the time. <laughs> it's a pretty good answer because he's so positive too. If you were stranded, two people yeah. stranded on an island, and yeah, and that, and he'd be really positive and happy, and you wouldn't get miserable. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't say Bruce, Joe. Bruce, yeah, I don't know where mm. Bruce is. I think he's already on Isolation Island somewhere. James, I mean, it's a tough question because like uh, the players, I I really like. Uh, 
I love watching and have interesting personalities. That's because they're on the field. I don't, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just I think he's just like a bright, happy, like interesting player, I guess. Yeah, I don't, but that's like mostly because of what I've seen about him. Talked to him once or twice, but I don't really know him that well. Happy, well, easy going. You could get to know him on Isolation Island. I guess so. I guess so. I mean, there's some players I know because I've covered them who are really interesting guys or, you know, good conversation, thoughtful. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could list those guys too. Maybe but you I'm, should I'm ask not... who you don't want to take to Isolation Island. Oh, no. <laughs> Stay away from that one. You answer that question, Joe. <laughs> Damn it. It's worth a try. <laughs> I mean, you, you do like, you know, it's part of the job. We're there every day, uh, other than like days off or whatever, but we're there most of the time. And then, uh, there frequently and so there's like things that happen inevitably over a eight month season two months of spring training six months of the regular season and then the ninth if there's a they go all the way to the world series there's highs and lows players go through good and bad moments team goes through good and bad moments like they're tense they're angry and they're not happy with something you wrote and you're you're there like you have to, like i have to be accountable the same way they're accountable if they have any issues with something i wrote like i'm there to answer for it um i think that's a huge part of the job and, uh, you know, we're asking them for their time. Like, if they have any issues, I'm there. And, like, not necessarily to defend what I wrote, but to explain it. Like, you know, I mean, like, if there's something wrong, like, we, we have a correction. We issue a correction. Like, the New York Times says we have a policy, you know, that we have there's something actually factually wrong. If they're just mad about something and they just want to vent, sometimes it happens. Like, this is not just yeah. players, but, you know, executives, agents, you know, owners. This happens. Like, I've, I've been chewed out by people before for something they didn't like. But it's accurate. And there's, like... And people, and not to get on my soapbox, but like people say that <laughs> stories are like negative or positive. I, I don't see them that way. I see them as factual. Like if, you know, if you made the game losing error that cost the team that, that win, you did it. Like it's not a negative story. That's a fact. That's what happened. Like I didn't make the game yeah. losing error. I'm just stating what happened. Why are you mad at me? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm just, and if you're struggling and hitting 200 for the last two months and I'm stating it in a story and writing a story about that. That's reflecting reality. I didn't. That's not a negative story. That's a fact. Like if you don't want, if you don't want me to write about you playing bad, don't play bad. If you don't want to write about me, me to write about you getting arrested, don't get arrested. Like simple, <laughs> plain and simple. That's it for part one of our chat with James Wagner. Join us later in the week for part two. Yeah.